Well, happy Mother's Day again. Uh, my mom came down this weekend in order to spend the weekend with me, and I sent her to Prior Lake with my wife this morning so she could hear Kenny. Uh, I said, that is my gift to you. You have been having to listen to me since I was born. Uh, we will send you over there and you can hear Kenny. Wonderful. Happy Mother's Day. We're so excited that you're here. We are in the middle of a sermon series called Romans Road. We looked at Romans chapter 1 through 4 in the fall. And now in the spring, we're looking at Romans chapter 5 through 8. What does Romans Road, Romans 5 through 8 have to do with Mother's Day? Uh, as I was on my way in this morning, I was listening to the radio and there was a woman who was talking about the impact that her mom had had on her life. And she was saying, the most significant thing that my mom did for me was to instill the gospel in my life. And she quoted two different verses, both of which are in Romans 5 through 8. And it dawned on me, you know what? I don't know that there's anything more important for Mother's Day than mothers who understand, live out, and teach the message that we're looking at today, the message of the gospel. It's the message of life. And we're so thankful for moms around this room who have invested in teaching that message about Jesus to their kids and teaching that message about Jesus to all of those around them. Last week when we were looking at Romans chapter 5, actually the last two weeks that we've been looking at Romans chapter 5, we have seen that God backs up this great big dump truck full of blessings and he just dumps out this dump truck full of blessings on all of those who have been saved by Jesus Christ. On all of those who have been justified is the word that was used. As a matter of fact, Romans chapter 5 verse 1 started this way. Since we have been justified by faith, right? Since we have been justified by faith. And then it's verse after verse of God's blessings for those who have received justification through faith in Jesus Christ. And we said, it's pretty important to know what justification is then. I mean, if all of the blessings of salvation depend on whether or not we've been justified, what does it mean to be justified or experience God's justification? And if I ask you that question, I'm hoping that you might be able to come up with Kenny's memory device that he has been using, where he says justification can be remembered as, just as if I never sinned justification, just as if I never sinned, right? It's a great memory tool that he has given you to understand justification means to be declared innocent or righteous by God. If I was to describe justification using my kindergarten level drawings that I often use, I would say that justification operates like this. You have been made in the image of God. Let me turn it off and back on. And maybe... And boom. And pow. And now. And what? Hmm. I don't. Yeah, that wasn't me. I mean, that's nice that it's up there now. But oh, 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 look at that. Hooray. Okay, somebody remind me where we were. No. All right, so. Genesis chapter 1 says you were made in the image and the likeness of God. What does that mean? Part of what it means is God's character was meant to be perfectly lived out in your life. God is love. Right? If we represent God's character by the big circle, 
You were meant to be in the image and the likeness so that you perfectly lived out his character. If he is love, you were meant to be loving and never selfish in all you do. If he is truth, which he is, we were meant to be always honest and never dishonest in what we do. But we saw last week that when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? We were broken. Right? The image of God was broken in us and we were spiritually dead, separated from God. And so this brokenness has spread throughout humanity. Anybody seen this out there? Anybody recognize it anywhere in here? Right? And so all of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. But through the work of Jesus Christ, those who place their faith in him can be justified. That means that Jesus' righteousness is credited to our account and he takes our sin and our punishment upon himself. Sin and punishment that have been a part of my daily life are given to Jesus' account. His righteousness is credited to my account in the courtroom of God so that now God declares me innocent and righteous. Totally. Why? Because my daily life has been innocent and righteous? Right? You were all supposed to yell at once here, no, right? We know you. Absolutely not. I'm declared innocent and righteous because Jesus has taken my sin and my punishment and I've gained his righteousness in its place. That is God's grace. That is God's forgiveness. And we saw last week that there may be some people, maybe even some people in this room, who when they hear about that overwhelming grace of God say, yeah, that, that's great for most people but you don't know what kind of sinner I have been. God's grace is great for the average sinner, but you don't know what goes on in here or in here. You don't know the amount of lies, the amount of lust. You don't know the number of times I've placed idols ahead of God in my life. You don't know the number of times I've gossiped, the amount of slander. You don't know the kinds of thoughts that I have. Sure, God's grace is great for the average person, but he can't possibly forgive me. Is that true? Absolutely not, right? What did we see last week? We saw that where grace increased, grace abounded all the more. Where grace increased, grace abounded all the more. If you think of your sin like a container, maybe we've sinned different amounts, and maybe some people have a sin amount that's about the size of a Kemp's ice cream bucket. Maybe other people have a sin amount that is like the size of a bathtub. And others have an amount of sin that is more like a swimming pool. Maybe we do have different amounts of sin. And part of what this verse is saying is, where sin increases, it never increases to the point where if somebody places their faith and trust in Jesus, it outperforms the grace of God. Right? Every time. If you've been justified by faith in Jesus, in the battle between sin and condemnation and grace and life, as Matthew West said a few years ago, grace wins every time. Right? Grace wins every time in your life. It abounds. That Greek word means to overflow over the edges. Right? So no matter how much sin there is, if you place your faith and your trust in Jesus, grace abounds, it overflows over the edges and covers all of that. Now, it is because of that overwhelming and abundant grace of God, his forgiveness, that we come to the first question of our passage today as we look at Romans 6, 1 through 14. And that question is this, 
What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? As Paul has preached this message of salvation by grace uh, through faith in Jesus Christ, he has heard people say, wait, it's by grace. Then why stop sinning? As a matter of fact, if God's grace is seen in my sin, and we want God's grace to be seen, why don't I just sin all the more? I mean, God loves to forgive. My sin nature loves to sin. This sounds like a match made in heaven. What's the problem? Paul says, that is the thinking of the pit. Verse 2. By no means. In the Greek, this is an emphatic no. It could be translated, never, never, never. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We are those who have died to sin. What does that mean we've died to sin? Think about what it means when we say someone or something is dead to us. What do we mean by that? Yeah, let's, let's say that my daughter and I get into a massive fight this afternoon. I mean, the biggest fight in human history. She wanted to serve Erica chicken for Mother's Day. I said steak. We couldn't resolve our differences. And so we are yelling and screaming, and it reaches a point where I say, get out, you are dead to me. And she says, I'm never coming back, you're dead to me. What do we mean by that? We mean that association is cut off. Relationship is cut off. Now, that's a silly illustration, right? My daughter and I aren't going to get in a fight like that today. But in reality, there are young believers who come to faith in Jesus Christ in certain cultures all around our world, and when they do, their family holds a funeral for them and declares them to be dead to the family because they've placed their faith in Jesus. What does that mean? No more association. No more relationship. And when we read that we have died to sin, what does it mean? No more association. No more relationship with sin for us. We have been justified. And so we have been declared righteous in the courtroom of God. And so why would we live differently in our daily lives is what Paul is saying. If God has made us pure in his eyes, why would we live in impurity? If God has cleansed us, why would we live in uncleanliness? We, we wouldn't because we're dead to sin, cut off of association, cut off of relationship. Now, Paul's going to talk a little more about what it means to be dead to sin using an illustration of the Christian practice of baptism, verses 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father... We, too, might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. Paul appeals to the Christian practice of baptism, a practice so important that the New Testament knows nothing of someone who places their faith in Jesus Christ and doesn't immediately seek to be baptized into his name. And within that Christian practice of baptism... There are two images. The first is the image of going down into the water. And that image represents death and burial. Death of our old self. Death of our sin. Burial into the cleansing and forgiving waters of Jesus. And so it represents the forgiveness of Jesus. The justification that we have through Jesus. And when we are raised, there is 
a second image that we're to understand. And that image is when we come up out of the water, we are made new. We're resurrected into new life. Now, every time that I have performed a baptism in my 23 years as a pastor, when I have put somebody under the water, I've brought them back up. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Appreciate that. Somebody said, you should put that on your resume. Because baptism doesn't just represent, okay, get this. Baptism doesn't just represent forgiveness. It also represents the new life in Christ that he has saved us to. It's the death burial and it's the resurrection back out. And while baptism is important, right, and it's an important part of this passage, it's actually not the main thing that Paul's talking about here. He is using baptism as an illustration in order to help you understand every person who experiences justification and forgiveness also experiences sanctification and new life. Right Now, what is that sanctification? I, that's another Bible word like justification. Sanctification is the work that God's Holy Spirit does in us in our daily lives to make us more like Jesus. In my kindergarten drawings, we always represent it like this, with cute little clip art tools that have gone to work with the Holy Spirit, cutting off rough edges of sin, pounding out dents of idolatry and sin in our life in order to make us more and more in our daily lives like Jesus. That's sanctification. And part of what Paul is talking about, remember the context. Wait, if, if God is gracious, is there a reason I should stop sinning? Paul says, yes, yes, because forgiveness and new life where we walk away from sin and into Christ's likeness always go together. Always go together. That's why James 2.17 says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. A real or genuine faith that produces forgiveness in a person's life always leads them to a new life of works of love and obedience towards God. It is always the evidence that that forgiveness has taken place. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says there's going to be all kinds of people who on the day of judgment say, well, I prayed a prayer in 1994. I was baptized in 2007. I had 74.2% church attendance on my record. I called you Lord. And Jesus is going to say, you know, the evidence of a person who is genuinely justified and forgiven is that their life is being sanctified. That they are growing in holiness and love and obedience for God. A, a person who simply seeks God for the forgiveness and doesn't want to live with him and live for him doesn't love God in any way. We can see that illustrated in marriage. Let's say that a man and a woman come together and they get married. And the wife knows that her husband is a perfectly forgiving man. Totally and completely forgiving. And because she knows he's a perfectly forgiving man, 
she begins to have affair after affair after affair after affair. Does she love him? No, no, she's all about herself, right? She doesn't love him. There's no love in that when you just take advantage of someone's forgiveness. There's no love there. And if that illustration seems harsh and crude, uh, take solace in the fact that that's God's illustration that he uses again and again in the Old Testament, isn't it? Again and again with his people in the Old Testament, he says, we're married. I'm the husband, you're the wife, I know you don't love me because you are cheating on me. Over and over again, with these idols, with these false gods, with this selfishness, with these desires. So he wants us to understand, no, if we simply seek him for the forgiveness and we don't submit to him as our Lord, there's no genuine love relationship there between us. All who are justified are also sanctified. All who are justified are also sanctified. God has done what is necessary in order for that process to take place in your life. What has he done? He's broken the power of sin. Look at the next two verses. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. We were slaves to sin. What does that mean? It means sin was our master. And what it told us to do, we did. Now you may be saying, before Jesus, sin wasn't my master. I did what I wanted. What is that? That is the very root of sin, isn't it? I did what I wanted is the very root of sin. That, that is sin operating as our master. And when Jesus, when we place our faith in Jesus, his work frees us from that slavery to sin. For the first time in our lives, we can begin to act with love towards God, with a desire for his glory in our actions. For the first time, we breathe that free air and can act in ways that are about love for God. Chuck Swindoll has a great illustration about his life in the Marine Corps and how it corresponds to how sin operates in the life of the believer. He says, when I, when I first began my years in the Marine Corps, I was subject to a drill instructor. Anyone have that experience? He was perhaps the most intimidating, overpowering authority I have ever experienced. He told us when to eat, when to drink, where to march, even when we could relieve ourselves. The relationship was simple. He told me what to do, and I was obligated to do it. Years after I was honorably discharged, I was waiting to board a flight in Dallas, and I heard a familiar voice echoing from my distant past. You people get in line. I know you heard me, straight, hear a, I know you heard me say a straight line. Do you know what a straight line is? Sure enough, it was my old drill instructor trying to prepare a new set of wet-nosed recruits. I watched him work for a few minutes, and then he looked my way. How's it going, Gunny? I asked. Got all these wet-nosed kids in line? He looked at me and flashed a grin and said, yes, sir. He and I talked for a few minutes and had a great time. Why? Because he no longer has any authority over me. If he tried to order me into line, I would have laughed out loud, done an about face, and marched myself to a coffee shop. I don't have to obey drill instructors or even generals for that matter. They no longer have power or authority in my life. And what is true of that drill instructor in his life is true of sin in our life. 
It is no longer a master. It no longer has power and authority in your life. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean you'll never sin again? It's not what it means. 1 John 1.8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Okay, so then what does it mean that it's not our master anymore? What it means is that you will not face a situation or temptation today or tomorrow or the next day where you have to give in. That's what it means. It means you no longer need to choose sin in any situation that you come up against because the power of the Holy Spirit operating within you gives you all that you need in order to choose righteousness rather than sin. That's why 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you. That's not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Because you're no longer a slave to sin. You have the freedom in Jesus Christ not to sin. Every temptation you meet, you can overcome. Whatever it is, whether it is coveting stuff on HGTV, whether it is lusting after stuff on a computer screen, whether it is lying to other people to get out of trouble, whether it is gossiping about people behind their back, whether it is, I'm going to stop, you get the idea? Whatever it is, you have the power to overcome that through the salvation of Jesus Christ in your life. Do you see it that way? Do you see yourself as set free? Or do you slip into the pattern of thinking, well, I gave into that sin last week, and I gave into that sin yesterday. I guess it's inevitable I'll give into that sin tomorrow. Because God doesn't want us to think like that. He wants us to understand, even if you gave into the, that sin last week, even if you gave into that sin yesterday, through the work of Jesus Christ, you have all the power that is needed in order to overcome that sin and temptation in your life this week. He has set us free from slavery to sin. And now the next verses say, we can live for God. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What is Paul teaching us here? He says, look to Jesus. Jesus died once for sin. But every day he lives for God. Not just while he was on earth. Every day that the God-man, Jesus Christ, lives, he lives in order to bring glory and honor to the Father. Even now, as he mediates on our behalf, as he prays for us, he does so because ultimately he is living for God. Paul says, that, that's you guys. That's the example for you. Just as Christ died once for sins, so you died once to sins. You were forgiven. You were justified. But now, if you have been justified, you will what? Live every day for God. As Christ lives every day for God, you will live every day for God. That's God's call on our life, which is why we read in Revelation verses like this. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will uh, never blot his name out from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And a few chapters later, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my people. Conquers means to have victory or defeat the enemy. And Jesus says over and over again in these passages, it is the person who is experiencing sanctification. Victory over sin in their life. Not instant perfection, but growing more and more in the love and obedience that's represented in Jesus Christ. Those are the people who ultimately will dwell with me forever. Because the evidence that someone has been justified is that they are being sanctified. The evidence that someone has been forgiven is that they are growing in newness of life with Jesus. Now, this passage that we're looking at finishes up by telling us what our part is in this sanctification process. God hasn't made it so that I just go to sleep at night, and if I can get a solid seven hours of sleep, then God works sanctification in me during that time. Six hours, sorry you miss out on sanctification. Right? That's not the way it works. God hasn't made it to work so that I just sit on the couch and binge 12 hours worth of Netflix and somehow sanctification just works into me through that. It's not the way he's made it to work. God has made it so that those who experience real relationship with him work in cooperation in order to bring about that sanctified righteousness in our life. L look at how that happens. Let us, not, uh, let us not sin, therefore. Let not sin, therefore. There we go. Reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Yep, that's the desire. Right? We, we don't want sin to reign in us. We want to be free. How does that happen? Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace." What is your part in sanctification according to these verses? Right? Part number one. There's two parts. Part number one, don't present yourself to sin. It actually says, don't present your members to sin, which is a Greek word for the parts of your body. Don't present your eyes, your ears, your mind, and your heart to the things of sin. Don't do that. That's not how God's sanctification process works in our life. What, what does it mean to present yourself? Right? To present yourself means to come into proximity with, right? to come into closeness with. If a soldier comes and presents themselves to the king, what do they do? They come into the king's very presence. If I present you with a steaming hot plate of chocolate chip cookies, right? what am I doing? I'm bringing those cookies into your presence. Right? I'm bringing those into your presence. And here we are told, don't get in the presence. Right? Don't, don't be in the vicinity of sin. Don't let your eyes, your ears, your mind, your heart, the members of your body be involved with the things of sin. 
That's step number one. I love the fictional journal someone wrote about how this process works in our life as believers, right? Again, fictional journal here. They said, day one, I went for a walk down a street and I fell into a hole. I didn't see it coming. It took me a long time to get out. It's not my fault. Day two, I went for a walk down the same street. I fell in the same hole. It took me a long time to get out. Why did I do that? That was stupid. Day three, I went for a walk down the same street and I fell in the same hole. I got out quickly this time. I think this is my fault. Day four, I took a walk down the same street. I saw the hole. I walked around it. Day five, I went for a walk down a different street. I'm tired of being around that hole. Every time I go down that street, something is sucking me down that hole. I hate that hole. I don't want to be around it anymore. You've walked down those streets. You've sat and opened the computer and known what, lays down, what lies down that street is a hole. You've grabbed the remote and you know what lies down that street. That, that could be a hole. You've entered into conversations with people who are grumbly and complaining. You know what lies down the street of this conversation is a hole. You've turned on the radio to people who are really fired up and angry about stuff that's going on. And you know what, what lays down the road in, the, in this particular situation is just more anger and frustration for me. That, that's a hole I need to avoid. You have again and again and again seen those streets. And in Romans chapter 6, God says, your part in sanctification is to stay away from those things. Your eyes, your ears, your mind, and your heart, don't put them in the presence of sin. But that's only half the battle. The other half, present yourself to God. Present yourself to God. Again, it says present your members to God. Your eyes, your ears, your mind, your heart, where do we present it? We present it to God and the things of God. God has made it so that we grow more like Christ by working to know Him more. By having greater relationship with Him. Those fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Right? Those fruit, we don't get those by aiming at the fruit. By working really hard to be more loving and more patient and more kind. That isn't the way God has designed it. They're not the fruit of Matt's really hard work. They're the fruit of the Spirit. How do I get them? By drawing closer and closer to God. And as I draw closer and closer in relationship with God, He produces those fruit in my life. God doesn't call us to work really, really hard at those fruit. He calls us to expend our energy knowing Him more and more, growing deeper and deeper in relationship with Him. How do we do that? We do it by dedicating times to spend with Him in prayer over the course of the day. Informal times of prayer are outstanding, but what I've found in my life is those informal times of prayer happen more often when I have dedicated times of prayer that I'm observing with Him. And when I don't have those dedicated times of prayer, the informal times of prayer don't happen nearly as often. So having dedicated times to meet with Him, spend time with Him, grow in relationship with Him. We dig into the Word. The Word is the sword of the Spirit. If God's Spirit is going to work in our life and work in us and through us, how's that going to happen? He's going to use the Word of God to do it. And so we dig in. 
I, I had somebody say to me this weekend, I, I got to let you know that core discipleship has helped me to grow and change my life significantly over the course of the last year. And I started to get pretty puffed up. Yeah, it has. It's because of my teaching. Absolutely. And then they hit me with, yeah, it's not the teaching. I didn't even say it out loud. It was like, it was like they knew the moment of pride I was experiencing. It's not the teaching, they said to me. It's just all the time digging into God's word and doing the homework. They're like, I just love meeting with God in his word. And this time that we have spent over this year just digging in deep, I know him more. I know him more. I know who he is. I know more about what he's calling me to. I know him more intimately. And because of that, I'm growing. Yeah, that, that's the way God has designed it with his word. Invest in relationships with people who are running hard after Jesus. We live in a world where a lot of people call themselves Christians. I'm not just saying invest in relationships with people who call themselves Christians. No, with people who are running after Jesus. I told my kids over and over again as they were growing up, you know you have found the right person to marry when they are running so hard after Jesus that you have to run hard to keep up. That's when you know you found the right person. And the same is true in all of our relationships. We want to have the people who are closest to us be people who are running hard after Jesus so that we got to run hard to keep up with them. We're encouraging them, running hard after Jesus together. We want to be doing all these things, praying, spending time with believers who are running after Jesus, digging into God's word. Let me encourage you this week. Present yourself to God. Your eyes, your ears, your mind, your heart, present it to God and the things of God. That is the way God has designed for his forgiven people to be transformed and changed and made new when we present ourselves to him. We're going to spend some time now entering into taking the Lord's Supper. And as we do, we recognize what Jesus has done on our behalf that not only produces forgiveness in our life. What else does it produce? Transformation and new life. God loves us too much to just forgive us. He loves us enough to transform us and to make us new in him in our daily lives. And I want us to celebrate that as we go to the table. We're going to go and uh, as we're singing uh, songs of worship and praise to God, we're going to take the, the bread and the cup and bring it back to our seats and just in a few minutes, I'll come back out and lead us in the taking of those elements together. Let's worship God and remember Jesus as we go to those tables.